This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 293rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new dinosaur, platyosaur type sauropodomorph, and a little baby dromaeosaur raptor from northern Alaska. Oh. We also have an interview with Evan Johnson Ransom, who's studying tyrannosaurs at Oklahoma State University. And we have dinosaur of the day, Atrocia raptor. But before we get into all of that, we have our Patreon shoutouts, which are now in a new format. We put a poll up on Patreon about changing our shoutout process, and everyone who replied, which I think was in the 30s of people, (laughs) said they were okay with the change. And the change that I speak of is that we're going to only thank new patrons and then do a random list of other patrons to fill up the 10 slots per week so that we're not inundating with 20, 30 patrons per week like we have been lately because I feel like it was getting a little bit long and we could see in the metrics that people were kept skipping this part of the show. (laughs) So hopefully it's more likely that someone will hear your name because they won't skip it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. So this week, our two new patrons are Iwan and Robert. Thank you both very much for joining. As with all new patrons, we sent you both Bonjoros, which are this little app where I record myself thanking you personally. And I also check with pronunciation on your name and what name you want to use. So if you didn't see that, check your email for Bonjoro, which is B-O-N-J-O-R-O. And yeah, it comes through the email that's associated with your Patreon account. We send them to every new patron. We have been for a while too. So if you join lately and you didn't see one, check your spam box, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And our random eight special patrons that we're thanking this week are Jared Copeland, Kyle, Moss Utah Raptor, Morgan Eklov, Rhinosaurus, Stefan, Brendan Kavanaugh, and Neil Ovenator, or Neil Ovenator, depending on your preferences. <laughs> so thank you all very much, and I hope you enjoy this new abbreviated version of the shoutouts that we're going to start doing. Yeah, we still appreciate all of you immensely. Absolutely. And if you want to join then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Uh, first, we're going to start with our new little baby dromaeosaurid from northern Alaska. We actually were embargoed about talking about this until after the podcast normally comes out. So we had to delay <laughs> releasing the podcast a little bit so that we could cover this new story. So we might as well do it first since it's hot off the presses. So this article was written by Alfio Chiarenza, 
and others and published in PLOS One, one of our favorite journals because they're open access and nice and lengthy. So you never are wanting for more information. <laughs> <laughs> or so that you get all the information you need. That's true too, yeah. As I mentioned before, it's a new dromaeosaurid, also known as a raptor, because all the dromaeosaurs have those cool sickle claws on their toes. But really, it's only known from one little tiny jaw piece in Alaska. <laughs> Specifically, it's from the Prince Creek Formation in northern Alaska. It's seriously northern Alaska. It's well over 70 degrees north, hundreds of miles north of the Arctic Circle, basically as far north as you can go in Alaska. It's crazy far up there. During the Cretaceous, it wasn't quite as far north. I don't think it was all the way in the Arctic Circle back then, but it was pretty close. And it's still the farthest north known dinosaur formation anywhere in the world. Sounds like a cold place to excavate. Yes. <laughs> the average annual temperature in 2020 is just 10 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 12 Celsius. And that's the average throughout the whole year, day and night, is 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is definitely permafrost territory. Not a great place to try to dig for dinosaurs. I think most of the ones that they get, they kind of have to collect off the surface because it's really difficult to excavate. During the Cretaceous, it was a little bit warmer. The average temperature back then was about 37 to 47 degrees Fahrenheit or 3 to 8 Celsius, which is about like Moscow today. So not a warm place, <laughs> but compared to permafrost, it's substantially better. The Prince Creek Formation is mostly known for hadrosaurids. So there's various hadrosaurs and lambiosaurs and things that are known from the area. But there have been a few troodontid remains found before. And of course, the Tyrannosaur Nanuxaurus, which is super awesome. Mm -hmm. And now we also have this new find, which is a small piece of jaw. They didn't give it an actual fun name. You know, it's not in Australia, so they didn't immediately nickname it. <laughs> and they also didn't give it an official scientific name because it's just not significant enough to get a scientific name. It would almost immediately become a, a nomon dubium probably. So Right. Until they find more fossils. Yeah. So they just left it with a collection name, which is DMNH21183. And DMNH is always confusing to me because I always think it's going to be in Denver, but it's in Dallas. And the Dallas Museum of Natural History is now known as the Perot Museum of Nature and Science. So it should really be the PMNS, but it's the DMNH. Well, all their specimens are probably labeled DMNH so yeah. for consistency. Yeah, it's confusing. But anyway, it's in Dallas now, apparently. It went a long way from northern Alaska. Now it can get warm. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. After 70 million years in the cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this new piece includes a pair of teeth in just this small piece of jaw. It's big enough for about four teeth, but it's right at the front of the jaw. And by jaw, I mean the lower jaw, because that's really the only part that's technically the jaw. And it's all the way at the front, basically. But it's missing the really important bit, which is right at the front. And that's where the two sides of the jaw kind of meet. That part is kind of eroded away. So it's enough to see the teeth really well, and the height of the jaw, and that's really about it that you can tell from it. Of the two teeth, one of them is sticking out and easy to measure and everything. The other one is still unerupted mostly, so you just see the tip of it. I'm sure they could do a good CT scan and get more information on it. But the one that's fully out there, you can get a lot of detail from, and the other one looks very similar, so we're not missing a lot of information by just looking at the one. Based on the denticle pattern on that erupted tooth, 
they think that it was a juvenile, and they also said that it has a quote-unquote fibrous bone texture, which seems like a juvenile trait. I think that's what we normally refer to as spongy bone. Mm. Like it hasn't really gotten all solidified and it's still growing really rapidly. The Prince Creek Formation is about 70 million years old. So this is well into the late Cretaceous. We're only about 4 million years from the end of dinosaurs at this point, but not quite into Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops Hell Creek Formation type timing. This is still a couple million years before that. They tried to do some phylogenetics with DMNH21183. Rolls off the tongue. It really does. <laughs> and it's in Dromaeosauridae, but not Unanlaginae. That Unanlaginae are the South American raptors that we talk about sometimes. So it's not in that group. They can tell that it's definitely not in that group, but they can't get any more specific. So it could be closely related to Velociraptor or Dromaeosaurus or Dakotaraptor, like who knows. So the paleoartist had a lot of leeway. Yes. <laughs> there is some really great paleoart that goes with it too. It shows DMNH21183 as roughly velociraptor sized, hunting a little marsupial rat thing mm. in a log. <laughs> Lots of feathers too. Yeah, I'd say they depicted it a lot like a velociraptor. It's got the big tail fan of feathers and a lot of feathers on its wings. Obviously, this is all just random speculation and educated guesses because we only have that tip of the jaw. So definitely take the paleo art with a grain of salt. <laughs> it's a lot of creative license, but it is beautiful. It has a background with the northern lights in it. And there's also a pachyrhinosaurus really close. I don't know what it's doing so close to these little <laughs> dromaeosaurs. Enjoying the northern lights. I guess so. Maybe it's just like that's where the food is and it's not worried about these little guys because they're not going to hurt it. Mm -hmm. So why not? Looks like there's a couple of them. Yes. Yeah, they're really cool. It's a nice piece of art. It also shows a lot of foliage, including conifer trees, which are the groups that include pine and redwood. And then there are also some ferns and flowering plants and horsetails in the mix. Those are all known from the Prince Creek Formation, so they definitely did their research on that one. And other animals that they mention in the paper that are known from the area are basal ornithopods and montosaurus and the quote-unquote diminutive tyrannosaurid nanuxaurus. <laughs> Poor nanuxaurus. <laughs> There's also some other dromaeosaurs and a larger troodontid that are all from that area as well. So quite a few small little predators running around in this northern Alaska zone. It's an interesting ecosystem. It really is, especially you figure it was so close to the Arctic Circle, it's going to have those crazy long days in the summer and the super short days in the winter, probably issues with plants not growing so well for several months of the year. Mm -hmm. it, it would be quite a place to be. It's really a lot like some of the Australian formations that we talk about that were near the South Pole, but obviously opposite side of the earth. <laughs> yep. But just as cold. Uh, yeah. They refer to the spot where Prince Creek Formation is as Beringia, I think is how you pronounce it. Like the Bering, maybe Beringia, like Bering Strait sort of name. Usually the only time we talk about Beringia is with humans and with human migration because Beringia is basically the area that humans moved over from Asia 
into North America about 20,000 years ago and then went back and forth a little bit. So it's really important. It's when the sea level dropped because there was that ice age, you know, with the mammoths and mastodons and all that stuff. And due to that ice forming, it dropped sea level and then humans could get across, finally made it to the Americas. But apparently back in the late Cretaceous, dinosaurs were also going through <laughs> Beringia. So it's just another similarity with humans as the same kind of routes of travel back and forth between Asia. Although in the case of dinosaurs, I don't know how they were doing it because sea level was way higher. And I don't think anybody is proposing that there were polar ice caps in the Cretaceous. So maybe they were doing some swimming or maybe these guys had a lot of feathers and they could fly. <laughs> I don't know. We've seen other research from the Prince Creek Formation in the past. My One of my favorite all-time talks from SVP was a set of microfossils that were found in northern Alaska and described by Patrick Druckenmiller. I don't know if you saw that one, Sabrina. You might have been in a different room. But there were tons of little baby fossils. A lot of them you couldn't even identify as a fossil until you looked at them under a microscope. Hmm. Some of them were like small enough to fit on the head of a pin sort of scale. They're incredibly tiny. And in that set, they found lots of hadrosaur bones that looked like they were way too young to have walked in from somewhere else. And they used that to infer that dinosaurs were up in this northern Alaska area year round. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just a migratory spot. Same kind of questions we've had about Antarctica because it doesn't seem like a great place to be in the winter, but based on the fact that we, we keep finding babies in northern Alaska, seems like they were there in the winter. That could explain why there's so many carnivores there too. Yeah, exactly. They get the full ecosystem from little baby hadrosaurs, little baby <laughs> raptors, everything. One interesting piece to the paper that came out today though is that in addition to just supporting that previous research, also expands on it a little bit because in terrestrial animals today, basically meaning not birds, we mostly see big herbivores migrating and not small carnivores. So you think about things like wildebeest and when you watch those nature shows about the African migrations, and these animals traveling crazy distances, even caribou, I think in Canada travel pretty long distances, mm -hmm. but you don't see like cheetahs and lions going out and just trekking for hundreds of miles. Nope, they just wait until their prey comes to them. Exactly. And they said partly that's because carnivores need to, quote, establish, maintain, and defend their territories, end quote. So if you're a migrating carnivore, you're going to be going through a lot of other carnivores' territory, and it's just going to be more trouble than it's worth. So you're better off just, like you say, sitting there and waiting. Well, he's waiting for a bunch of them to show up. Then it's still they still have to hunt. Yeah. Need more fossils. Yeah. Yet again. <laughs> Up next, we've got our new sauropodomorph from northern Switzerland. This one was written by Oliver Rauhut and others and published in the Swiss Journal of Geosciences. This dinosaur did get a name. And what a name. Yes. I'm going to go with a German pronunciation because northern Switzerland, especially where this was found, is basically on the border with Germany. So I'm going to go with the German pronunciation, which I think is something like Schleitheimia Schutzei. And Schleitheimia is after Schleitheim, the village where it was found. Makes sense. Plus Ia, because that makes it Latin. And then Schutzei for Emil Schutz, who collected some of the bones in the 1950s. So this is another one of those sat around for a long time before getting an official name, Dinosaurus. Was it refound in a collection? Yes, but they also ended up finding some more material and combining it with other material mm. that they noticed was similar. 
Schleitimia is from the late Triassic, really roughly about 210 million years ago. They're not 100% sure on exactly when in the late Triassic it's from. That puts it in between the two Platyosaurus species. So there's Platyosaurus gracilis, which was probably a little bit older than Schleitimia. And then there's Platyosaurus engelharti, which is probably a little bit more recent than Schleitimia. All of the material is in the collections of the Paleontological Institute and Museum, University of Zurich, or PIMUZ. It seems like that should have a fun pronunciation like Pimuz. <laughs> Pimuz. Yeah. And it was referred to Platyosaurus back in 1986 by Peter Galton. In addition to the 1950s excavated material, the researchers also included some bones from 1915, 1942, and 2016 in the paper. So it's over 100 years of excavations being combined. They also described some of the other dinosaur material as either non-specific species or assigned them to other species. But I'm going to focus on Schleitimia because that's the exciting one. Plus then you get to say that name again again. It's, it's a weird name. The holotype is only a partial ilium, which is part of the hips. But they also referred a lot of other material to Schleitimia. There are more pieces of the hips. There's several vertebrae from all three of the major parts, meaning the neck, back, and tail. There's a mostly complete humerus and a much less complete femur and just one toe bone. Hmm. These are all bones that they think are part of Schleitimia, but they're not sure. Officially, it's just the hips. The unique features of Schleitimia are really technical. It includes several details of the hips, like different parts are a little bit wider and more round and things like that. And I think that's why they picked it as the holotype because it had quite a few unique features. It also has a very robust, as they describe it, fourth trochanter on the femur. What is that? It's one of the bumps that they have in order for muscle attachment points. Mm. I'm not sure which one they didn't specify. I'm sure to people that study prosauropods, it's very obvious to them and they don't need to spell that for them. But to me, I don't know. <laughs> It's also missing a groove, which is the typical insertion point for the caudofemoralis longus. I think they mean caudofemoralis, or maybe that's just an alternate spelling. But if it is the caudofemoralis, that's the muscle that runs down the tail, basically the full length of the tail, and then attaches to the kind of top back of the femur, and it helps power the walking and running of dinosaurs, kind of helps lift the leg. But they didn't mention any implications about that. It seems like Though, if it doesn't have this muscle attachment point, or at least much of a muscle at attachment point for the caudofemoralis, it wouldn't be a very fast runner because we think that's one of the main things that help dinosaurs run quickly. So maybe this was a pretty slow <laughs> sauropodomorph. Meant to be a prey animal. Could be. Or it was just big enough for the time that it didn't need to run away. Mm. Phylogenetically speaking, Schleitimia is weirdly far away from Platyosaurus, considering it was in the same place and it's bookended by two different species of Platyosaurus. Its closest relative is Isanosaurus, which is way over in <laughs> Thailand, although it was maybe around the same period, but some people have said that Isanosaurus was actually tens of millions of years after Platyosaurus. So pretty strange that that one ends up being the closest relative it's possible that it's because they don't have that much of the dinosaur to go by and the character set is just causing weird things to come out together in the phylogenetic analysis, but we don't know. 
They didn't give any size estimates for Slytymia. The humerus is estimated to be about 50 centimeters or 1.6 feet long if it was complete. And I looked up some Platyosaurus measurements that seems pretty typical for Platyosaurus. So if you know what Platyosaurus looks like, it was probably roughly similar proportions, I would say. Even though phylogenetically, Platyosaurus is pretty far away. It's kind of the best we can do. They didn't estimate the femur length because it was just too broken up. They basically had the, the bottom little piece and then a little bit from the middle. There isn't any part of the top. And they just, I don't think they had enough to estimate its length. I'm guessing it's probably quadrupedalish like how Isanosaurus is usually depicted. And yeah, it's probably pretty big for the Triassic, but definitely not big if you're thinking about later sauropods like Diplodocus, Apatosaurus, the Titanosaurus, all that. Well, they all had to start somewhere. Yep. And that somewhere appears to be in Europe, <laughs> at least as far as sauropods go, because this is now the third sauropodomorph like Platyosaurus that we have from right around the same time period in Switzerland alone. So there's a lot of them there. In other news, we've heard that SVP, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, the conference this year is going to be held virtually instead of in Cincinnati, Ohio, as was planned. No details yet that I've seen. We'll share more, though, when we learn more. Yeah, we want to go. It's the week of the year that I learned by far the most about dinosaurs. It's the most dinosaur-dense information you can possibly imagine. I wonder if we'll be able to make it to more sessions if it's virtual. Maybe. Or maybe they'll have them recorded. Oh, yeah. Maybe even just temporarily so that we can go back. And yeah, that's what we needed. More. More talks. <laughs> Six hours straight just isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's always so much to cover. There is. Next, this is a weird one, but Screen Rant covered why Batman has a dinosaur in his cave. There wasn't an explanation if this led to B-Rex. There's the whole Batman as a Tyrannosaur comic happening now. Yeah. I haven't been following the comics, so someone else probably knows better than me. But as for why Batman had a dinosaur in his cave to begin with, apparently it started in Batman issue 35, which came out in 1946. And there is a character Murray Wilson Hart, who was like P.T. Barnum, who creates Dinosaur Island, where people can see robotic recreations of prehistoric animals, and he had been inspired by a headline about a mammoth found in a glacier. So he decides he's going to host a dinner party with mammoth steaks. Wait, and what? This is all in the comic issue. That's like on Dinosaur Island, he does a mammoth steak? No, he's inspired by a headline about a mammoth that was found in a glacier, and somehow he gets some mammoth steaks, so he has a dinosaur. So he has a dinner party, but he also created Dinosaur Island. Oh, so he's just doing all sorts of weird stuff with prehistoric animals. Yeah. I would go to that Dinosaur Island, though. See some recreated animatronic dinosaurs? That'd be cool. Well, Batman and Robin did. Well, so first they go to the dinner party, and then somebody's named Mr. Breach says that they shouldn't be at the dinner party because they rely on modern technology too much, <laughs> and they're there eating mammoth steaks. And he bets $5,000 that Batman and Robin can't last 36 hours on Dinosaur Island without their gadgets. And Batman accepts. So Breach is supposed to control the animatronic animals, but then somebody named Stephen Chase takes over and then tries to kill Batman and Robin with the dinosaurs. And it sounds like there's a lot of charging dinosaurs, and it ends with Chase riding a robotic T-Rex and going after Batman. 
and Robin is able to stop this T-Rex by pouring water on the robot, and Robin has somehow attached robotic pterodactyl wings to himself. <laughs> That's how he pours the water over the T-Rex. And then Batman ends up keeping the robotic T-Rex and puts it in the Batcave. So he made an island, which is presumably surrounded by water, and also open to the elements, filled with robotic dinosaurs, but if you pour water on it, it destroys it. I guess. So they, they weren't worried about rain or anything? I guess not. <laughs> I didn't read the actual issue. That's pretty strange. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess he has a broken T-Rex robot in his bat cave, it sounds like, because it's been ruined by water. Well, maybe, but if this robotic T-Rex becomes B-Rex, you know, Batman T-Rex, then I guess it wouldn't be broken. Maybe he fixed it up. Yeah, I really don't know the details. If somebody knows, let us know. In other news, the Plant Riverside District is having a contest to name its Amphocelius fragilimus replica before their grand opening on July 29th. Also known as Marapunisaurus, depending on who you ask. Yes, but they purposely wanted to stick with Amphocelius. And, oh, we should mention, this is in Savannah, Georgia. And we've talked about this replica before. It's 135 feet long, and it's chrome mm. and animatronic. It can move its neck up and down about 12 feet. It's pretty good. Yeah. So if you want to enter this contest... To name it. Yeah, it ends July 22nd. And last, Google recently launched augmented reality dinosaurs as part of their search. They used graphics that were developed for the game Jurassic World Alive, and... When you search for one of the available animals, they'll pop up. So the dinosaurs include T-Rex, Velociraptor, Triceratops, Spinosaurus, Stegosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Ankylosaurus, Dilophosaurus, Parasaurolophus, and then on the non-dinosaur side, Pteranodon. And these dinosaurs scale to their environment. If you're on Android, you'll need an AR core supported device. And then if you're on iOS, you'll need iOS 11 and up. I haven't figured out how to get it to work on my phone yet. <laughs> but these aren't the first AR animals. Well, you can get the same ones, it sounds like, or we could get them by just playing Jurassic World Alive because they have an AR feature in there. That's true. It's just crazy to think it comes in search now. Yeah. I like that they use the Jurassic World Alive versions because I those were a little more scientifically accurate. They have some feathers on some of the dinosaurs. Mm. It's blasphemy for the Jurassic Park universe, but <laughs> somebody got away with it when they were designing that game. I wonder if they'll add more dinosaurs. Yeah, there's a pretty good list. They got ankylosaurus. That's the most important thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're set. <laughs> yep. But what about a brontosaurus? That's true. Are there any others? Oh, it's brachiosaurus. Okay. That's the only sauropod though, huh? Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just keep an eye out. We're going to go on to our interview with Evan Johnson Ransom in a bit. But first, we're going to go to a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Evan Johnson Ransom. We also have an extended version of this interview for all of our patrons, so check that out if you're interested. We're joined this week by Evan Johnson Ransom, who's a master's student and McNair Fellow studying under Eric Snively at the Vertebrate Paleontology Research Lab at Oklahoma State University, and he's currently studying tyrannosaurs after a recent switch over to studying dinosaurs. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We've Watching your talks lately on you're on the Fossil Friday with ALF Museum and Western Science Center and then the Dino Nerds for Black Lives live stream. And I saw you you're a self-described tyrannosaur nerd. And I <laughs> I love that term first. <laughs> Thank you. Could you tell us how did you get into tyrannosaurs? So Tyrannosaurus has always been my favorite dinosaur, but I really got into Tyrannosaur paleontology when I became a docent for the Field Museum, where I always did my Sioux talks. So it was in January of 2017, I was a docent for Sioux to Tyrannosaurus Rex. And there I basically just talked about the paleobiology behavior and biomechanics and life history of Sioux, but I also started learning more about other tyrannosaurs. So this included like Eutyrannus, a large feathered tyrannosaur, the name and entomologies of other tyrannosaurs such as Lifranex, the Gorking, Gorgosaurus. There was just all sorts of things I started learning about tyrannosaurs. And usually anytime I go on vacation or if I go on a conference like SVP, I always frequent to the museums and take note or gander at any of the tyrannosaur skeletons that I have on display, as those are usually just tyrannosaurs that I only saw in just books or papers, or I only, or I only saw on just videos. So, mm-hmm. so you've seen Stan in like twenty different <laughs> museums by this point. Let's see. I'm trying to remember how many times I've seen Stan and was able to remember. Aha! That's Stan. Mm-hmm. It was at the Kenosha Dinosaur Discovery Museum in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and also at the New Mexico Natural History Museum in Albuquerque, Mm -hmm. New 
Mexico. Yeah, once you, or at least for us, it was like once we realized, then Stan became very recognizable. Started popping up everywhere. Like yeah. I think the Minnesota Museum has one. We've seen them. Um, I think in California we saw one as well. Yeah, they're all over the place. The Black Hills Institute just sells them like hotcakes. Yeah, Stan has a very distinct skull. If you really compare his to like Sue's and a couple of other T Rex specimens, mm-hmm. he has a very normal-looking teeth. Yeah, cool. So, did you get into T Rex because did you grow up in Chicago? Yes, I did. So you were going to the Field Museum maybe even before Sue was there? Yes, because when I first went to the Field Museum, the first dinosaur that I always saw was the large Brachiosaurus that was seen outside. Mm. But I don't think I was present when they were moving it. But I do remember staying up all night seeing them (laughs) unveil Sue, however. Awesome. Oh, wow. I would definitely be a huge T-Rex fan if I had grown up in Chicago with the unveiling of Sue. I don't know how you couldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was four years old at the time, too, when they were unveiling Sue. That is perfect. Oh, yeah. Sealed in your memory. (laughs) So what is your focus now that you're studying tyrannosaurs? So in my focus, I'm interested in studying the evolution of feeding behavior in tyrannosaurs. One thing that I was always fascinated with about Sue was the amount of force that an adult T-Rex could generate, as an adult T-Rex was capable of generating a bite force of 8,000 to 12,000 pounds of force. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was pretty cool because we know a lot about T-Rex, but we also like to know about like how Tyrannosaurs got their powerful bite. And I remember back in 2008, there was this one documentary on by National Geographic called Dinosaur Death Trap, where they featured Guanlong, a small crested tyrannosaur or prosratosaur from China. And I was amazed at like how unique Guanlong was, but also for the fact that like it was small in comparison to other theropods and other dinosaurs that it lived alongside. And over time, you get to see this gradual shift from small-bodied tyrannosaurs with very delicate skulls to tyrannosaurs that had very robust skulls, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and we keep finding more of that group that's closer and closer to T-Rex, showing that period of switching from a small tyrannosaur to a large tyrannosaur was quicker and quicker every time we fill in a piece, it seems like. Yes, indeed. Because one other thing that I did for my Twitter project, the Summer of Theropods, was that Seats, this was a large Allosauroid-type theropod, and it was found in Utah. It lived during the late Cretaceous, or more specifically during the early stages of late Cretaceous, and it really showed that like the Allosauroids, they didn't really yield their dominance of North America until much later, though. So it really begs the question as to like how tyrannosaurs were just constantly biding their time until they knew one day they would become the new dominant predators. And in some ecosystems where you see seats, it lived alongside armored dinosaurs such as ankylosaurids, sauropods, and even the ornithopods. But once the armored dinosaurs became more tanky, like say some more advanced thyrophorans or ankylosaurs or even ceratopsians, as well as the extinction of the sauropods, at the Allosaurus basically just couldn't really adapt to it in North America, but they were still able to find more success in South America and, and Africa. And Tyrannosaurs, they were basically just fit for the job then. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. It's got that crazy, or at least its skull had that ability to get that crazy bite force. So yeah, I guess that's that's what you need <laughs> in that situation. Yeah. So you mentioned your Summer of Theropods project. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? So originally this was just going to be reserved for the month of June, and I already had like a list of theropods in mind. But the more I looked through the list, as well as a plethora of other dinosaur books, I noticed that like there were a couple of theropods that probably need some spotlights, such as Yi Chi, Sinoornithosaurus, Oviraptor, even a couple of other obscure theropods. Like the original list was just mostly large or famous theropod dinosaurs. And so I decided to, to just expand it to just the entire summer, starting from June to August, where I basically just cover like well-known theropods, but also some more obscure ones that are currently gaining some massive spotlight too. Mm -hmm. Because today I just covered Dilophosaurus and Dilophosaurus, everybody remembers it from Jurassic Park where it had like the frilled neck and spat venom and killed Dennis (laughs) Nitri or or Wayne Knight or aka Newman. But there's a lot of research that goes into Dilophosaurus where you actually where paleontologists studied the skull of Dilophosaurus, where it, it couldn't really have like a powerful bite, the arm movements where it could actually move its arm in varying degrees of angles are actually pretty strong too. Hmm. They even mm-hmm. found like evidence that Dilophosaurus was capable of crouching like a bird or like a cassowary. And wow. not to mention, there's been studies on the crests where they could have been used for like sexual display. And not to mention histology, too. So we actually found like both an adult Dilophosaurus as well as a juvenile Dilophosaurus, too. Mm-hmm. Anytime I hear about a dinosaur compared to a cassowary, I mean, I already know dinosaurs would have been terrifying. But I, I think like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We've only seen a few cassowaries. They've all been in zoos and they're all just sitting calmly. Oh, but you know what they're capable of. Well, we, I mean, we've seen other stuff like ostriches that are always insane and seem scarier somehow. It's <laughs> just because maybe it's the height. I don't know. Yeah, and then there's emus, too, because they can actually flare up their necks, too. They can actually yeah. Yeah. Up well and make, like, a very terrifying hissing sound. Yeah. Yeah. I, they're all larger than me, so I'm afraid automatically. Yeah. But. <laughs> and when they puff out their wings, too, they actually kind of look a little bit like the Jurassic Park Dilophosaurus with the frill. Mm. They give that same kind of shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so the Summer of Theropods, it's a hashtag. It's on Twitter, right? Yes. Yeah. So people wanted to follow along. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. So I also wanted to ask, this came up in your talk on Fossil Friday and you had a slide and you mentioned Tyrannosaurus, I think it was, as a murderous figure skater. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask, like, what, can you, yeah, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? I'm really curious. <laughs> so that was actually described by my, by Dr. Thomas Holtz and my advisor, Dr. Eric Snively. So this was like a large collaborative project with both Dr. Snively, Dr. Holtz, Dr. Haley O'Brien of Oklahoma State, Larry Whitmer of Ohio University, Don Henderson, Philip J. Curry, and I know a lot more. Mm-hmm. But the project involved the maneuverability and mobility of tyrannosaurs. And they actually found that tyrannosaurs could actually turn a lot faster than the dinosaurs that, that they were chasing, as well as other theropods. 
And mm. it was thanks to this one specialized toe bone called the arctometatarsis. You could mm. basically think of a Tyrannosaurus as like a giant spinning top, but but a lot more maneuverable. So imagine if you would like a large body dinosaur trying to escape a T-Rex right now, and you think you can probably just turn and just escape it, but it could easily just outmaneuver you by just turning around a lot quicker. So it really shows that Tyrannosaurus, that, that when they were hunting and cornering their prey, if any chance that a dinosaur would escape, a Tyrannosaur could easily just turn at very rapid moments <laughs> than the dinosaur they were chasing. Wow. Then for whatever reason, I, I don't know why I had a, an image in my head of a T-Rex in like a ballerina kind of outfit, but I guess that's well, not quite a figure skater. That, actually, <laughs> um, someone had actually, someone had actually drawn that and it's actually on Dr. O'Brien's front door, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I also saw, well, should rather say heard your really good Tyrannosaur impressions. <laughs> Would you mind doing one for us so our, our listeners can experience it? <laughs> of course. So which one do you want to, which one should I do? The loud guttural quacking sound or the cooing sound? What do you think, Garrett? I think I like the sound of a cooing. That is fantastic. We're both just smiling so widely and trying not to make noises into the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. Thank you. I know you've you've talked about it elsewhere, but how did you learn to do that? Um, So back when I was in high school, I always wanted to be like a voice actor, but I always liked liked science more. However, I was always amazed by like just the amount of time and effort and energy that actors spend when portraying characters on cartoons and stuff. Like, I think one of my favorite voice actors growing up was Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob. Like, he basically just got to voice a plethora of different characters. Mm-hmm. And over time, when I started to started to learn more about science, I was always amazed more about like the different animal noises, however, because animals, they make a variety of different sounds. It's not just roaring like a lion. They make so many sounds. It's like they're basically just vocalizing and each one is very unique. And with dinosaurs, we always like to give like just stock roaring sounds. But over time, science continues to evolve, and so does our perception on dinosaurs. And so we now see T-Rex not just as like just a giant animal that's roaring, but kind of like a giant angry swan or something that's just (laughs) making very unknown unknown sounds that we would never even imagine. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Unknown sounds, agile movement. What do you think about the, like debate about how fast t-rex could run do you have an opinion on that so that one has constantly been debated so back in the day paleontologists thought that tyrannosaurus could basically move at a speed of 35 miles per hour now figuratively it could move that fast but it could also just trip and fall and hurt itself severely Mm -hmm. but now some paleontologists think that like an average speed would have been like maybe at least 10 or 12 miles per hour, which you would think would be slow, 
but it's a lot faster than other dinosaurs that it lived alongside, so, so such as Triceratops as well as the large duckbill dinosaurs. And plus, another thing is that like T. Rex is also very agile, and it would have relied more on ambush hunting too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you like the recent? hypothesis that basically it was more of an endurance hunter as opposed to like a charge long time long speed chasing a jeep sort of (laughs) i like that because it's just kind of like running you would see more in small body dinosaurs like the ornithomimosaurus on one end it would be cool to see a t-rex run but at the same time just seeing it doing more like power walking it's more realistic but it's also terrifying too because it's like you think it's moving slow, but it's but it's really catching up speed and it's not even slowing down. To quote Dr. Ian Malcolm, must go faster. And you're just <laughs> walking really fast too. It's like we should probably keep we should probably keep this Jeep in the maximum overdrive. <laughs> so I have a completely off-topic question. Um, because I saw in one of your recent talks, you mentioned a superhero story that you're working on that involves dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> Would you mind telling us about it? If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine, too. Sure, it's fine. No, 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 definitely. Um, so this has been something that I've been working on for a long time. Let's see. So it's basically a superhero story where everybody has superpowers and each one is divided into five different categories. The first is feral, where everybody turns into animals. Psychic, people can use like psychic abilities like telepathy and telekinesis. Mm-hmm. Elemental, they control the elements. And molecular, which involves altering their body's chemical, biological, or physical composition. And the other one is fifth category. So this is basically, it can be either a combination of the aforementioned abilities or just something unrelated. And my character, he can turn into and summon dinosaurs that have elemental abilities and and also have human speech. <laughs> yes. I was just tacking that on the end. <laughs> and he can talk like a human. <laughs> so any kind of dinosaur? Well, I do kind of have like a set limit. So at the moment, it's only just 10 dinosaurs. And it's really just kind of like the more famous dinosaurs like T-Rex, Allosaurus, Triceratops, Apatosaurus, Pteranodon, just just the really famous ones. And the reason why I chose the famous ones is because like, not because they're more recognizable, but because a lot of research has now been put into those famous dinosaurs and new research has now come out that we never really thought about. For example, there has actually been more popular reconstructions that, that now shows that Triceratops, they would have had like fully cratinous horns that would have curled upwards, kind of resembling Loki's crown, hmm. having like little spines on their back. So like, so like a very, like a very, like a very angry porcupine. Mm-hmm. Um, Pteranodon, there's, there's always been popular depictions that would have shown Pteranodon being able to dive in the water. So like a seagull and Spinosaurus. Like Spinosaurus is just a very interesting dinosaur and it's really cool to see like just be living in the water, but also like imagine it using like, like water abilities, like Blastoise from Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fun. Give it a use for those big hands that don't make a ton of sense for its aquatic environment. (laughs) So you're working on this story now. When can we uh, read it? 
So I've been working on it since 2009, but now I feel like I've been working on it for such a long time. I think it's like now it's time for me to like, like get it out there. I have talked with like a friend of mine who's editing it as well as an artist. So I'm tentatively looking at maybe either probably late August at best. Oh, nice. That's pretty soon. And oh, yeah. end the summer of theropods with the superhero story. Yes. And I have been thinking about like how I would release it. So I've thought about kind of like releasing it more like as a as like a weekly blog series. So kind of like the kind of like Matt Weddle and Mike Taylor's SV Pal blogs, mm-hmm. where you basically have like have a chapter along with images that show off like what's going on in the story, as well as kind of like character bios and backgrounds too. Mm, yeah, that sounds cool. I totally read that. I hope you do make it in August. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I did mention I was going to ask you this question, um, and I know before you got into dinosaurs and tyrannosaurs specifically, you're you were studying fish. So, what made you make the switch? How did you make that transition? So when I was growing up, I always wanted to do dinosaurs, and when I first got into college at DePaul University, I studied under Dr. Ken Shishimata. He was a fish paleontologist. And I think one of the things that I would recommend to anyone that's starting out in paleo, no matter who it is that you study under, it's always good to kind of like just learn a trade as you go along. Because when I was studying under Dr. Shimada, I learned more about how to like describe specimens as well as write papers in, and always kind of like refer back to like the figures or tables when when writing, when running up the main text. Like for my first paper... I described fossil fishes from an unknown fossil locality in Nebraska. And then following this in 2016, I also described a chimera. It's a very weird fish that had like large bulbous eyes and a, and a large spine on its back. Hmm. It was the first chimera to be found in California, as most chimeras have always been found in Eastern North America, as well as in Europe. So this was like a big deal. Hmm. And another thing was that I also described uh, described a new fossil shark from from Nebraska. Nice. This was Arctorhinum mantelli, and that fossil is usually found in eastern North America, if I'm not mistaken. But I could be wrong. Is it a normal shark, or is it one of those ones with the crazy teeth all over the place? Um, no, it's actually Crux rhino was bigger than a great white, but not as big as megalodon, however. And it also lived alongside dinosaurs. So anytime you had like dinosaurs that were like dying by the shore, you would always see sharks swimming nearby and just grabbing a piece of it. <laughs> wow. So how much bigger than a great white was this shark? It measured 22 feet in length. Oof. Wow. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. That was a Cretaceous one? Yes. How did you get from there to Tyrannosaur? So for my interest in Tyrannosaurs, that was something that I did as a volunteer docent at the Field Museum. Every time I did my volunteer work at the Field Museum, I was always fascinated with Tyrannosaurs. And when I graduated in 2018, I also took a year off. And so... Then came the hard part is just trying to figure out like graduate schools and who to study under. And as I was looking through the SVP abstract booklet, I saw there was like this really cool 
Tyrannosaur talk about Tyrannosaur agility, which I actually read about, well, which I heard about in the summer. And I actually looked at the person's name, Dr. Eric Snively, and I asked if he was currently accepting students, to which he said he currently is. And the rest there is history. Wow, great. Is yeah. that is that like a, a typical thing, like something you would recommend for other people to do? Of course. I definitely, I definitely advocate for gap years because they definitely do give you time to breathe a little bit, but also like just take a look and see what it is you want to do. And another thing, and I forgot to mention this, but even though my undergraduate advisor did fish, I still learn a lot about research from him, however. Mm-hmm. So you had the basics, the foundation kind of laid already. Yes. Nice. Yeah. And you made your way back to dinosaurs. That's the important thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a little bit. I know you, in one talk, were kind of emphasizing how much you enjoy pro Ceratosauridae. Do you have a favorite dinosaur in that group? So this would actually be a tie between both Guanlong and Utyrannus, more for their significance in transfer research as well as in as well as in theropods. So Guanlong was found to be one of the most general or one of or one of the very first tyrannosaurs or tyrannosauroids. And it's interesting to see Guanlong and its can transition from small body theropods to large-bodied hypercarnivores. And another thing I always liked about the prosaurus is just like how unique their appearance is, where they have those very large ornate crests on their head that would have been used for display, as well as long three-fingered arms that would have been used for grasping, in contrast to what you would see in the in the two-fingered nubs of of large bipteranosaurs like T-Rex or Gorgosaurus. Mm-hmm. And Utyrannus is another fun one because once again, it's a it's a proceratosaurid, but it's a very large proceratosaurid. I think Utyrannus is the largest proceratosaurid because I, there's another one called Sinotyrannus that's comparable in size to it. But Utyrannus is also important because it's one of it's the largest feathered theropod dinosaur. The only other the only other theropod dinosaur to have been found with feathers that was that was the second largest was Bapiosaurus. Mm. Yeah, I never thought about Utyrannus in that way. I always just think of it as it's so cool because it's a feathered tyrannosaur. But the fact that it's the largest feathered dinosaur is really cool. Yeah. The thinking with Utyrannus and its feathers is that it was in a colder environment and that's why it had feathers. Correct. Do you you like that side of it or do you think maybe display had a a part in um, it too. I'm not entirely sure. So it probably could always be for be, be for be for both, however. So on one end, yes, it's possible that Utyrannus did live in a did live in a cold environment. So it probably would have had like a su- superfluous amount of fluff. I can almost never say that word <laughs> over its body that probably would have been used to keep itself warm. But when it came down to like attracting mates, it also would have relied on its on probably its its feathery coloring, as well as its crest, too, to impress potential mates. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, because a lot of people like to argue about, was it this factor or this factor that made it, you know, have that structure? And the answer is often both. Why not both? (laughs) (laughs) Multi-use. Yeah. We use our arms for all sorts of things. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) You talked a little bit about this, but just any advice you would give to any aspiring paleontologists? So for any aspiring paleontologists, 
when looking at paleontology, make sure that when you study under someone, make sure they want you for you. Don't go to like a name brand school because you think it because you think it'll be great. Go to a school that you know that someone really cares about you and they know they want to see you succeed. Hmm. I would also encourage that they that they get involved with research because they can learn the trade a lot quicker too by getting involved in presenting the research in conferences as well as having papers published. And also continue to read scientific papers because it can, it can give you an idea on how other authors write their papers and give you and also give you an idea on how you should probably write your papers too. Mm-hmm. as well as networking too. You never know who you might meet. Yeah. Hopefully SVP happens this year in some form because that's a pretty important networking place. Definitely. I'm hoping for it too. I want to ask, I've seen a little bit of discussion about undergrad majors because most schools don't have paleontology as an undergrad major. Do you have any recommendations on which tracks people might want to go down? Biology or geology. So with biology, you get to basically understand the anatomy and biology of an organism and see how it would have functioned in real life. And with geology, you also get to understand like the environment that extinct organisms get to, got to live in too. So both are so both are really valuable majors to have. Which one did you do? I did biology. Nice. So for our listeners, where's the best place to find out more about you and your work? Currently, that would be Twitter. So my Twitter name is at EJR underscore paleo. And usually I'm currently just posting the summer of theropods, but I am also like posting progress on my research too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Evan, for chatting with us. We had a great time. Yeah, it's always good to talk about tyrannosaurs mm-hmm. and hear their coos. <laughs> yes, that was amazing. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Atrociraptor, which was a request from DinoBo via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. Atrociraptor was a dromaeosaurid theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous and what is now Alberta, Canada, in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. It's closely related to Deinonychus. And it may have had feathers, it was probably about the same size as Dromaeosaurus. Atrociraptor lived after Dromaeosaurus, possibly even alongside Dakotaraptor. Atrociraptor is estimated to be about 6.5 feet or 2 meters long and weigh 33 pounds or 15 kilograms. The skull was about 6.7 inches or 17 centimeters long, and it had this short, tall skull, a, a short, deep snout. Atrociraptor was carnivorous, and its teeth had large serrations. The teeth are isodont, so they're all about the same size. The holotype had a maxilla, the upper jaw, with a really great set of teeth. There were no noticeable gaps. Yeah, a lot of times you see dinosaurs and they have like one tooth coming in and then there's a gap where there isn't a tooth. Especially with tyrannosaurs, you see their teeth are all janky all the time. This one, it's like they're totally even. It's more like the representations you see of Carcharodontosaurus and stuff, which is kind of the solid set of smaller serrated teeth without many gaps. 
Garrett grew up talking about teeth, so he always yeah, notices teeth. I do. There also isn't much else going on with this dinosaur. Mm. So the type and only species is Atrociraptor marshalli. It was discovered in 1995 by Wayne Marshall, which is how it got its species name. It found parts of the upper and lower jaws, including the teeth. And the teeth found in the Horseshoe Canyon formation were previously thought to belong to Sornithelestes, and now they're thought to be Atrociraptor because the teeth were so distinct. Atrociraptor was named in 2004 by Philip Curry and David Verricchio, and the genus name means savage robber. And then, as I mentioned, the species name is in honor of Wayne Marshall. It was found about three miles or five kilometers from the Royal Terrell Museum, and so now the fossils are housed there. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you're just down the road from one of the world's largest dinosaur museums, it's a good place to put them. Yeah. <laughs> it is weird that it's the closest relative to Deinonychus, which was so much earlier than it, even though it's like closer in size and time and place to Dromaeosaurus, but not as closely related. Lots of weird stuff happens in evolution. Yes. And our fun fact of the day was inspired by some monarch caterpillars and butterflies that we had on our milkweed recently. You'll see how this connects to dinosaurs in a second. All right. <laughs> the question that I came up with was whether or not butterflies or other insects could reach dinosaur sizes and why Ooh, or why not. That would be weird. It's really often depicted, especially in like comic books and like old movies like Godzilla with Mothra mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You see these huge insects or arthropods. So as far as arthropods go, meaning things with exoskeletons, that includes not just insects, but also beetles and the sea creatures with exoskeletons and basically everything that doesn't have a skeleton on the inside, there might be a limit on their size based on how they breathe. So arthropods breathe more through diffusion than pushing air around. So they're basically the exact opposite of dinosaurs, which have this amazing breathing apparatus so that they're constantly getting fresh air by utilizing their air sacs when they breathe in and out. Arthropods don't have lungs. They have gills if they're in the water. Actually, crabs have gills too, and then they survive on land because they keep their gills wet, and then the air diffuses into the water that's over their gills, and they kind of breathe that way. It's a really weird process. And then things that are on land, like say a beetle, just have these little holes and the air has to diffuse into these holes. And it's hard for air to diffuse really far in that way. So it's long been proposed that they couldn't get that big because the air wouldn't be able to make it that far into their body. But there are animals like horseshoe crabs that have a heart and a circulatory system and stuff. So they managed to get around that. And so the breathing might not be as much of a limit. Some people think it might not be as much of a limit as others. However, there is another huge problem with arthropods getting big, and it's their exoskeleton. Mm. So it turns out that exoskeletons make it really hard to grow. It takes a lot of energy. Yeah, but it's not just for growing the exoskeleton. All of the animals like us that have endoskeletons, we grow our muscles and organs slowly around our bones, and our bones can also grow independently and fuse and do all sorts of stuff. And we can just kind of slowly grow over time. We're all used to this. <laughs> Animals with exoskeletons cannot do this. Basically, if they try to grow their soft tissue, it gets squeezed by the exoskeleton that's around it. So they, they kind of are limited by that exoskeleton. And the only way to grow is to molt 
and then reharden an exoskeleton in that new larger size, basically. Hmm. In that transition time, before growing a hard skeleton, they have a soft body. So if you've ever eaten soft shell crab, that's, they try to catch it during that molting phase. And then, yeah, they're a lot softer. <laughs> One of the potential problems with that is that if they were huge, like dinosaur sized, and then all of a sudden they don't have a skeleton anymore, basically, you know, it's gotten all soft on them they could collapse under their own weight because they don't have any structure holding their body up and together. Hmm. And like they definitely couldn't walk around because that's going to put a lot of pressure on joints and things and the joints are soft, right? So that's going to be a big problem, especially for land-based animals. The other big problem with that is maybe even a bigger problem than the potentially not being able to move around much. And that's that it takes an incredible amount of energy to completely reform your skeleton when you grow. It's like if when you went through a growth spurt, you had to dissolve all your bones and then regrow all of them. That sounds painful. Yes, but it would also take a crazy amount of energy. Think of all the calcium. Yeah. And like. And you're vulnerable in the meantime. Yes. Yeah, I guess it strikes home when we think about ourselves without bones <laughs> as compared to an abstract arthropod molting. But on the bright side, molting is really cool because during the process of molting, they can radically change their bodies in crazy ways. I mean, we're all familiar with caterpillars turning into butterflies, but basically any body segments can be modified and changed into different parts. They can grow more legs, wings, all sorts of different things. And their growth stages are actually clearly defined into these discrete segments it's not like with humans and dinosaurs where they talk about, we think it was about this age, we could cut it to the bone, try to find some lags, count the number of years old it was. They go through phases called instars, which are really discrete units of an exact type. So you can think about like the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. Those are different instars and there's nothing in between. There's not like a half caterpillar, half butterfly. Those, the instars are really discreet and obvious what about, life stages. What about while it's changing? Well, yeah, I mean, there are a few hours, but it really boils down to hours of changing mm. versus days and months of living in the instars. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how much they can change their bodies. And because of that, you see this crazy variety when it comes to invertebrates that you don't see with tetrapods because we're all just stuck with four limbs, right? <laughs> the, and we've always had them. Yeah. And like, if you're a bird, you turn the front limbs into into wings, but that's it. Whereas with insects, it's like some of them have four wings. Some of them have eight legs. There's just any number of opportunities for changing and evolution. I just didn't want to make it sound like being an arthropod is all bad because they have some cool stuff. As far as the largest arthropod goes, the biggest one I can find is called Jekyllopteryx. And it's kind of like a giant underwater scorpion, but if you replaced the scorpion's tail with the from the stinger you replace that with like a big floppy fin so they still have those huge menacing pinchers on the front and they're about two and a half meters or eight feet long that's very large they're insane looking and terrifying a lot of times natural history museums will have them at life scale and you look at them you're like that's not life scale this is one of those things where it's like look i'm the size of the ant what's it like to be an ant no it's it's what it's like to be a human but in the devonian which <laughs> is about 400 million years ago it's, it's a scary place but that was in the water and a lot of times it's easier to get bigger in the water because there are less gravity restrictions and that was the biggest they ever got in all of history 
that we know of. So I think at this point, arthropods have way too much competition to reach dinosaur size, even if it was physically possible, because they'd just be too vulnerable and there's too many things filling all these niches. So if they were ever going to reach dinosaur sizes, they would have done it in the Devonian or Carboniferous because there was higher oxygen content, which might have helped with breathing. There weren't all these vertebrates fighting them for niches, but they didn't manage to do it then, so they're probably never going to. Well, in the Devonian, they reached small dinosaur sizes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess there's the bee hummingbird, so dinosaur size is like <laughs> anything. <laughs> quite a range. Much. Yeah, but... As far as large dinosaurs go, like T-Rex, sauropod, that sort of scale, you don't have to worry about arthropods being that big. You're not going to have giant dragonflies picking people up and carrying them away or anything any time in history. Only in the movies. Yeah. I guess you need a time machine to get back there anyway, because there weren't people to be picked up. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app. Also, consider joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time. You could tell from watching me walk on my dinosaur.